Welcome to the Rejected Religion Podcast. I'm Stephanie Shea. For this month's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Rune Rasmussen about Nordic animism. Rune is from Denmark and is currently researching, writing about, and working with rejected Northern European traditional knowledge, what we'll be calling Nordic animism, by looking at multiple ways that people can re-engage with this cultural history. His idea is that this knowledge can be studied, but also used with cultural activism in order to reforge kinship ties with the land and the world around us, as he states. As I realized that Nordic animism might not be something that a lot of people know anything about, Rune and I start out in part one by talking about what animism is and how we can understand it, especially in relation to other religions such as heathenry and neo-paganism. We also discuss why this animist knowledge was rejected in the first place by looking back in history and Rune explains important animist concepts such as Ragnarok and the world tree called Yggdrasil and how these concepts are extremely important to an animist understanding of our world. Welcome to the podcast, Rune. I'm very happy to have you here today to talk with me about Nordic animism. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So there's quite a bit that I'd like to discuss with you about this topic. But before we get into all of those different areas, I think it might be helpful to establish uh, for those who may not know exactly what it is that we're going to be talking about. And I, I think it's kind of, I guess it's like a three-part question, but it's all kind of related to each other. The first part, of course, is what is animism? And then the second and third parts, uh, can we speak of different kinds of animism? And if so, uh, what makes Nordic animism a specific quote-unquote thing? Animism, uh, the way that we understand it today is that it is the idea that the world is filled with persons and uh, some of them are human, only some of them are human, but they all sort of require respect. And this is a definition um, that comes from uh, a very wise uh, British scholar named uh, Graham Harvey that um, I think he will be one of the main elders of animist thinking uh, one of these days. And it's a very good, uh, it's a very good definition, I think. This is different from what most people or many people would tend to think of animism, which is the idea that everything is animate. And that's not quite precise. Okay. Uh, it also has a little bit of a problematic aspect because these identifications, in fact, the whole idea of animism sort of comes from evolutionary, evolutionist science. And thereby it actually has in its, in its inception racist uh, connotations. But the way it is used today is, of course, uh, very contrary to that, mm. uh, basically. Um, so... So yeah, that, that I would say is, is animism. It's not that everything, 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 everything is necessarily animate. It is that there are persons in the world. And the way that these communities of persons are built up, that is different in different locations. Perhaps stones are really important in some locations. Uh, perhaps trees are really important in, in other locations. And, and perhaps some trees are important in some location, locations, but others not so important. Others not so important. So that is uh, that is how animisms work. It's a bit like this is also something I have from Graham Harvey that that a very foundational concept in animism is respect. Um, he, he talked about how how the word respect is very uh, one of the most commonly used words in in the many indigenous languages around the world. Um, but you show respect in different ways. In some locations, you shake the hand. In others, you rub your noses. You know, these are very different things. In some locations, beer is like the essence of life. It's, you know, uh, in others, it's poison. And, and, and so humans are different. Different contexts okay. are different. And therefore, also different animisms are different. So... And this also leads to the next part of your, your question, which is what is Nordic animism? As a, 
because you can talk about different kinds of, of, of animism, of course. And Nordic animism is a kind of a fluffy term that is sort of in a very general way pointing towards Northern Europe. Mm. But, uh, but I am talking about it in a rather fluffy way where I'm sort of thinking about Northern Europe but not necessarily only uh, uh, um, Germanic-speaking Northern Europeans. There are also Sami, there are Mayan, Finnish, Finnish, and Baltic, different kinds of people. And in fact, the animisms that are characteristic of Northern Europe, they are quite similar because they're dealing with a similar uh, eco-sphere. So, so you find a good example is a friend of mine. is um, He lives in Northern Sweden where they have had and still have this uh, bear totemism. And this bear totemism, or I don't totally see it as a bear totemism, and this culture of kinship with bear is trans-ethnic. Finns also have it. They have it very much. Sami also have it. They also have it very much. And Swedish people also have it. So, so when I'm talking about Nordic animism, I'm talking about the kinds of animist relating to the land and relating to others of the land that are characteristic of Northern Europe. For instance, in Southern Scandinavia and Northern Germany, the elder tree is really important to people, and it has always been important. This is a very characteristic feature. You could compare it to if you go to Africa, you'll find that the baobab tree is really important to specific people. Uh, and, and this is a characteristic of the animism of this, this, uh, uh, this space. And there are also other aspects that are characteristic, and that is something about how you create relation with these others in the landscape. And there are specific traditions. Uh, I mentioned beer before. Beer is an incredibly important way that Northern Europeans create community, mm-hmm. and it still is today. It's important in the way we create community with each other. But, man, are you aware how old of a culture and deep of a cultural uh, uh, motif beer is. There are, there are uh, Iron Age runic inscription with one word on them, and the word is beer. <laughs> <laughs> it is very important. I didn't so, realize it was that old but, and that important, but I, yes, I mean, I can even just tell so, in my own, uh, in my own uh, neighborhood, of course, with the Dutch yeah. people. The Dutch people love beer, so. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And, and this is, and th- this particular product, beer, is produced in very uh, deep animist technologies of relating to the earth and is being uh, employed in animist technologies. You can compare it with tobacco among specific Native American right, groups. Okay. They would give a little bit of tobacco to a stone. They would share a little bit of tobacco also when two humans just meet each other. It's similar to the way that European, North, Northern Europeans give a little bit of beer to a stone, share beer when they meet each other. Uh, so um, so these, are, these are characteristic features of northern uh, animism. It's very, very interesting. Okay, so keeping in line with how people think about animism, and I, I think that uh, there might be some confusion, and even... I'm, I'm trying not to get too academic here because when I when I'm the question I was going to ask if is animism considered a religion, and and I know that the term religion in and of itself is already complicated because it's a constructed term. You know, the, there there's an argument that there really is no thing such thing as religion. It's just that we've made it up, <laughs> things like that. But uh, thinking of religion, though, for the sake of this argument, in the sense of it is a construct. It is a construction. So, if we think about that in 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 a in, in like a system, constructed system, the way humans think about their relationship to the world and maybe to otherworldly divine uh, elements uh, that they that they acknowledge, uh, can we talk about animism as as a religion in this way? Yeah. Now, when you were just asking this question, I was thinking. I was thinking, well, perhaps religion is a form of animism. <laughs> um, um, like, the word, like the word religion uh, is actually derived or 
many believe that it's it's derived from uh, uh, religare in Latin, which is the same word as ligament in English. It, it's a tie, a bond of some mm-hmm. sort. And that is, in a sense, a very, very animist way of thinking about religion, that it's about it's about tying things together. It's mm. about connections, making connections. We find similar ideas in, in Nordic animism and Nordic religious tradition, the idea that the bond is, the, the ties and bond is sort of a very foundational way that you understand what, what uh, spirituality is, is about. So I think that in a sense, animism is is a very foundational way of uh, human interacting with the world uh, where what we call religion is sort of a specific instance of it, actually. I think that's what I think. Okay. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, Because when we think of religion, we also think about a a very coherent whole. Mm. You know, it's a little bit like having an operative system on your computer. You're going to go with Ubuntu or you're going to go with, with Android or, or you know, uh, you move into this thing called Christianity. And, well, if you moved into Christianity, well, then uh, karma and Odin is probably not going to play that much of a role right, because it's right. supposed to be this coherent system. Mm-hmm. And that is how we today think of religion. Yeah. But animal is not so much like that. Mm. It focuses on the connection-making. Uh, and therefore, lang- languages, motifs from different kinds of religiosity can often be used by animists when when producing their their uh, their animism. So, like for instance, I've been um, uh, researching a lot of the Afro-American traditions uh, of Brazil, Afro-Brazilian religion, and these people are are producing. And you know what? In fact, all humans. This. They, they produce their relation to specific deities by pulling in motifs from very different worldviews and religions and they pull them together because their purpose is creating relation. It's not producing a coherent, systemic, kind of reified or thing that's called <laughs> a religion. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, do you get. Am I expressing myself clearly? Yes, like, yes. What's the difference between animism and religion? Yes, it is a there. It's very nuanced because in a it depends on how you're defining the the word religion. That's what it basically yeah. in my mind what it boils down to. Um, does animism have a, a, an idea of a, a system of gods and goddesses? Because you mentioned Odin, or is that something separate? There are there are, there are definitely kinds of animism that definitely have that kind of deities okay. in them. This is also something that, that that people for some reason a lot of people believe that if there are gods, then it is not animism. And I think this is also rests on that old idea that animism is the idea that everything is animate. So if I have a cop in my hand, then that also has a soul that I need to I don't know what I need to do with it, but. Um, but the idea of gods, these sometimes called cosmocratic deities that we know, for instance, from European pre-Christian religions, we know them from the West African traditions. There are also Mesoamerican traditions that have this Chinese religion. They also have these deities. Hawaiian uh, religion have these Odin, Freyr, Jupiter-style deities in them. Right? Contemporary writers on, on, on uh, Animism, they classify this as a kind of animism. Okay. It's sometimes called uh, analogism or hierarchical animism, that there are these cosmocratic deities. So the idea is that if you have, for instance, Odin, a very complex deity that's anthropomorph and so, so forth, then Odin is associated with a lot of different concrete things in the world. A day of the week specific animals, specific plants, specific uh, families, royal houses, seasonal festivals, uh, human qualities, areas of culture, crafts, social activities like war or poetry and so on, social roles that can be very opposed to being a vagabond and being king at the same time. 
there are these different concrete things in reality. And uh, Odin, you could say, is is the the anim the animation <laughs> the, of this complex, this composite complex of reality. And so, so you can say that what is characteristic of that that cultural space is perhaps making exactly that selection because these selections are are very culturally defined and very culturally constructed. And Odin uh, is a really good example of this because he he has these uh, surprising, almost uh, paradoxical compositions of being madness and wisdom at the same time and poetry and warriorhood and uh, vagabondry and, uh, and kingship and stuff like that. Okay, yeah, that's, that helps to clarify that, I think, because to be honest, it is a bit confusing. Uh, I think because what you're explaining very clearly is that it's very much uh, uh, a matter of context and situation and location and culture. So it could be a different thing in a different place, but it the 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 concept in and of itself of animism does allow for this cosmology if 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 you will my idea is to try to try to make sense of of this very complex uh idea uh so in 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 the light of that my next question is does animism differ from other worldviews such as heathenry or neo-paganism or are they just different expressions of this animism that you're speaking of? Well, I, I think that you find uh, people who identify as heathens, for instance, who, uh, who, who say that he, heathenry is not animist. Okay. Um, and so you, you find people who say that. And, and that's, of course, their uh, construction of what they, what they do. I think that a, a practice of uh, pre-Christian polytheism, for instance, from Europe, that is true to what that kind of religion is, would by necessity be animist. Uh, but that's my idea. Mm. Uh, it, not everybody agrees with that. Okay. Uh, and I think that, therefore, animism, in relation to something such as heathenry, can function as a a language, a way of thinking that can open heathenry to contemporary people, that can make heathenry something that makes sense to contemporary people. I mean, if, if you have an average contemporary person, then, uh, then uh, well, Christianity suggests an all-powerful, all-loving force behind everything. Well, that could kind of make sense. Buddhism suggests a a wheel of causal causality that sort of reproduces uh, pain or perhaps relieves us of pain could also make sense somehow. But the idea that thunder comes from a red bearded man pulled in a, in a car pulled by goat in, in the skies and hitting his hammer. That is a difficult one to sell, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it, you know, that there are elves living in a, inside a grave mound. It is, these are, from many contemporary modern people's perspective, that is weird shit. <laughs> and uh, and uh, animism gives sense to these things. Animism can work as a language that gives sense to these things. Mm. And it is a really good language. Boy, does that language work. Because when I look at, for instance, heathenry and paganism and these religions and look at the other languages that are there, they aren't particularly strong. One of them is uh, Jungian art, art types, for instance. But this is not, it's not strong contemporary scholarship. Another one is, is uh, nationalist folksgeists and, 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 and these kind of nationalist ideas. Well, just apart from the fact that they're bigoted, they, they, they are also not, these, this is not, you cannot find one contemporary social scholar or a cultural scholar who would work with such a concept, a folksgeist, a spirit of, of, of a, a cultural group that these figures, Thor and Odin and so on, that they are sort of expressions of that folksgeist that sort of, um, I don't know, manifest or uh, narrate 
a part of that, uh, folks, guys. It, these are these are problematic and anachronistic ways of trying to make these polytheist uh, religions make sense to contemporary people. But animism is a is a very vibrant and dynamic contemporary scholarship position that is able to step into a reality where we basically go, oh, damn, the Native Americans were right and we were wrong. There is actually a spirit in the tree. It was just our understanding of subjectivity that was a little bit too reductive and primitive. Well, we got wiser. Uh, and so, <laughs> and so, so animism, the animist way of thinking about the world is one that has been slowly consolidating. It was opened by this uh, amazing American anthropologist called Irving Hallowell back in the 60s. Uh, and since the 60s, little by little, they talk about almost a silent revolution in anthropology, as if this, this uh, worldview sort of grew strong under the radar. Nobody really discovered it. But now it's so strong that, that it's, it's, it's really very much there. So... Um, so and, and that's why I think that animism, I mean, already now we're seeing that animism is becoming a very strong position, a very strong language that people are starting to talk about, stuff like even neo-paganism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is definitely going to continue because it is just a very powerful way of understanding the world that is in our time. And there's also, there's a beauty in it. Like, it's as if Occidental history and thinking is doing a full turn. Oh, so now we are the ones learning from the Yanomamo shamans. That is actually the reality that we're in right now. An anthropologist such as uh, Eduardo Kuhn, he is working with Amazonian shamans in creating uh, policy documents where he's communicating directly from the spirits of the Amazon rainforest to the UN. That is the time we're living in, where where cutting-edge scholars will be working with shamans to allow the rainforest spirits to speak to the UN. You know, when I was a kid, when I was when I was young, <laughs> younger, I'm still young. Uh, 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 the availability of uh, indigenous uh, thinking was rather low. Yes. <laughs> when I was a teenager, it was like. We got this this thing called Chief Seattle speech, uh, and everybody had it and read it and was translated into Danish and so on. It never had anything to do with any indigenous American. It, it, it was created by some hippie in the 1970s who just wanted some, you know, used the, 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 the image of indigeneity to make his environmentalist message sound lofty and convincing. Oh. But today, man, we have a guy like Tyson Junkerporter. Uh, the Aboriginal Australian complexity thinker, uh, David Kopenauer, the an, uh, Amazonian uh, Yanomamo shaman, um, Robin Kimmerer, um, the uh, North American Potawatomi uh, botanist, all these voices, they're so powerful. They are just filled with passion and humor and intelligence and high philosophy. And you can just go out and get those books and read it. It's an amazing situation, actually, that, that we have moved into today. And this also makes the ways that these people are thinking available for majority populations and your descendants to think about ourselves and think about our own, uh, our own cultural heritage. Yes. And in, in that sense, there is a definite turn uh, that is, that is taking place. And I think it speaks to mm. a lot of people, even if you're not thinking on it, uh, of it on the terms of, uh, as we're speaking of it now, but you're just thinking of it in terms of, uh, popular culture, when you see uh, in works of fantasy and fiction and film and and other other forms, books, you know, literature, things like that, this is so uh, attractive to people, and people just can't get enough of it. <laughs> they just they just love it. So yeah, there is something that that really I don't know. Perhaps it has what you were talking about. It is just this um, this deep. I can't even think of the words that I'm looking for, but there's this this connection there, and then and this I think this is going to probably keep coming up again and again and again about this connection that that we have with these ideas that just feels old and it feels right in a in a way. So mm, totally, um, totally. 
And I, I think that, that we are seeing an amazing uh, rise, an amazing surge in people turning towards uh, um, land connectedness, mm-hmm. uh, custodianship, um, pre-Christian uh, animist uh, realities and so on. And you see it among all kinds of Europeans, incredible rise in paganisms, uh, witchcraft. Mm-hmm. You see it among Afro-Americans, an enormous tendency towards Sandaria, Hudu, Vudu, uh, Orisha religions, and these people. You see it among uh, indigenous populations, very strong, rising attention towards uh, the, uh, the uh, pre-Christian or pre-colonized uh, worldviews. And I think part of this reason, part of this, is the fact that there is a deep recognition in humanity right now of the fact that the modern reality, which is the idea that out there, there's a dead world. It, in here, there might, inside our human minds, there might be culture and cherubs and meanings and demons and trolls and all kind of nice stuff. But out there in, in the world, there's a, the world, the material world, is just dead pile of Lego bricks that we just have to exploit as efficiently as possible. And there's a deep recognition now, I think, going on that that idea when we are pressing that idea on reality, the dead exterior world, and it does something, and it does something to our world, it threatens our world. If we, if we sort of, what is it, invoke the dead world on our reality, then the world risks dying. And the, the, the gigantic cataclysms of climate change and biodiversity collapse that we're looking at right now, mm. which is really a catastrophes of, of, of dimensions that make the Second World War look like it look like a picnic, you know, Sunday school picnic. It is that serious mm. that the human suffering that we're looking uh, that we're facing right now. And I think that that the the worldview of a living world is something that people profoundly know that we are going to have to return to. communications uh, before the recording of this interview, you mentioned that you are working in multiple ways on re-engaging North European cultural history by looking at rejected traditional knowledge forms uh, in your cultural heritage, and that's what we're talking about now. Uh, And you argue that throughout history that, that there's been a significant rejection of this animist part of that culture. So I'd like to talk more about this rejection because we're, we've been hinting at it the, the, <laughs> already. So let's just get into it. If we can look both at early history and then modernity. So if we can like separate those two uh, concepts. So if we can start out by looking back in time, could you briefly outline why the Nordist animist worldview was initially rejected and what aspects of this worldview were rejected? Yeah, and, and a really important point in early history is, of course, the, the uh, advent of Christianity. Uh, and Christianity did not arrive in Scandinavia as this sort of exterior colonizing force. It wasn't like Romans arriving and Christianizing everybody. It was more like the fact that structures of power were, were building up at the time where states were, were in the process of formation. And this was a feudalist era. Uh, so, And if you were about to build a feudal state that you would like to make an empire in the, uh, in the Iron Age, Northern Europe, then being a Christian would enable you to do that more powerfully. So Christianity was, was very much linked to the, the um, infrastructure of power in the, the feudal games, so to say, that, that these 
uh, Viking Age kings were playing when they were trying to augment their power and become and, and create empires and so on. And they got quite a bit of the way. Uh, the, the, there was a Danish king uh, called Knut the Great who managed to gather under his rule almost all of Northern Europe at some point. He, he became the king of England and, and uh, was still a king of, of like almost a yeah, very big area. And, and that was through uh, like this feudal medieval kind of liaison making, marrying the right people and connecting with it. And all, it was that kind of thing. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. And being a Christian linked you into this, uh, this power structure. So Christian Christianity came into Northern Europe as a part of a, of building up of a power structure. Um, and in that process, uh, the pre-Christian religions were rejected uh, and became increasingly rejected. Now, people often have a tendency to see this stage of rejection as this very punctual thing that just happened. Like when you change the operative system on a computer, then you know it's from one to the next. But it wasn't like that. It was it was a long and bumpy road that that uh, changed uh, the whole landscape from being polytheist animist to being Christian. And an an important part of Christianity and where where I think Christianity rejects animism is that Christianity operates with very strict distinctions between divinity and humanity. These are things that are kept very strict apart. And that, I think, is the foundational rejection aspect of, I was about to say monotheism, but let me just say Christianity, because I'm, 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 I'm not quite sure exactly if it would be exactly the same if it was Judaism or Islam. But, um, and like, for instance, let me compare two instances of Christian and uh, polytheist expression. In the beginning of the Bible, there is a situation where the sons of God, in Hebrew, B'nai Elohim, mm-hmm. they descend and they marry the daughters of man. It's in the beginning of Genesis somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Genesis 12. I don't, I don't know exactly. I don't remember the, the chapter. Now, this intermarrying between humanity and something divine is such an effrontery to God that he goes into such a hysteric fit that he decides that he wants to, it, guess what? He, do you remember what he wants to do? Destroy everything. <laughs> to, yes. He wants to eradicate all life. Like talking about divine overreaction. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like humans having sex with spirits, but even if you don't like it, you know, I mean, destroying all life is a little bit of a stretch, you know, as overreactions go. And that's what he does. So the deluge comes as a, as a uh, punishment for this intermarrying between uh, gods and humans. Now, if you look at how polytheist religions uh, operate uh, the relation between uh, humanity and, and divinity, then this marrying is the whole point. You, if, if you look at, at uh, for instance, the Afro-Brazilian uh, religion and other Afro-American religions that, that I've studied that are very similar to pre-Christian Northern European and European religions, then you see that initiatory processes that marry a human being to a deity, that is the whole point. And the, the God descending and possessing a, a priestess is uh, often spoken about as a sexual thing. It is the the divinity pen- penetrating the human body, which, by the way, is also why there is uh, significant aspects of gender non-normativity, because if you are a man and you are becoming possessed by a deity, then you are a woman in relation to the penetrating deity, right? But anyway, that's a different discussion. But uh, but uh, the point here is that that this very strong continuity between humanity and divinity that is the, the the very point that is the connecting connecting and and you see the same things in, in um, uh, north european tradition you see uh, examples of 
uh, a young priestess who are somehow married to a god or uh, there's a saga that has this story and you also see by the way the idea of the effeminate the effeminized man as somehow related to priesthood and, and, and stuff like this they probably had a very similar scheme a kind of a continuity between divinity and humanity but Christianity operates with an extremely strict distinction between these spheres and a very harsh harsh judgment on that kind of connection. So this, I would say, is the first step in the rejection process. But then what you also see is that you see people trying to subvert this rejection of their traditional knowledge forms. So in a similar way, as you see uh, Yoruba descendants, uh, Afro-Brazilians, uh, that they will associate their deities with Christian saints um, then you, you actually see that there's a whole, whole little handful of saints that emerge in Northern Europe around the time of Christianization, saints that look conspicuously like pre-Christian uh, gods. And that is actually kind of a similar way of talking about this close continuity, because what is a saint? Well, it's a dead human being. And this idea that there is a close proximity between dead human beings and gods, that is, that is also a, this sort of an animist continuity worldview where, there's a close, where, where people build connection to gods. So that one of the craziest examples of this is the Swedish national saint, Saint Eric, uh, who uh, is all, has very strong similarities to the god Frey, who was a, um, a fertility god uh, characterized. He had a sword. And he was a phallic god. He was imaged with a erect phallus, right? So uh, Saint Eric has a sword and uh, a stick with uh, leaves on it. <laughs> and there are cases, and, and they would carry his image over the over the fields in the spring. His his uh, holiday is located here in the early spring in May. And uh, there, there there's one case where a, a Swedish peasant in the Middle Ages would make a vow to St. Eric in order to be cured of the disease he had. And then when he got well, you know what he did? He went up to Uppsala and sacrificed a horse to St. Eric. <laughs> oh. It's like, it's not, it's, it's, it's not like your standard normative way of practicing Catholicism, <laughs> let's go and sacrifice a horse up in Uppsala. Um, but this oh. is just an example that people had these resistance strategies that by which they were trying to um, transform or reinvent their traditional animus knowledge forms into into a new language, and that's uh, that's a thing that I've been focusing on quite a lot in my work with Nordic animus. Mm. That's really interesting because I can imagine that if you are in a in a culture that is animist and you have a religion coming to you that its tenants, uh, one of the tenants anyway, is that their God is disconnected from nature. God is outside of nature, of, of the world that, you know, that you're living in. That that could be very uh, jarring and just like cognitive dissonance. Like, how can this be? This is not even possible that, our, that, that the divine uh, nature of something is outside of, of what... The, the place that we're we're inhabiting. So that is mm-hmm. that's very interesting. And also the the idea that of of the intermingling of divine and human. Uh, if you look at all of the the famous tales of Greek mythology, the, the, all the heroes are demigods and goddesses. It's there, there was something like an elevated position that there that humans looked towards as this was this was an ideal. Even though that you know, they were never perfect, of course they always had their flaws, and and but that was a, I think that was also uh, uh, an affirmation that the, you know no one's perfect. We all make mistakes, so you know we can we can deal with that. That's the the poets, you know, the poetry and all of the and all of these stories. But anyway, I digress. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I I find this your your. Uh, your discussion to be super, super interesting. It just calls up all these other ideas in, in, in my mind when you're talking. 
There was one thing though that I wanted to bring up that uh, that you talk about. You have some YouTube videos about this, but you also wrote an article that you shared with me uh, that you talked about archaeological evidence from a period of time called the Fimbul Winter in the 6th century. Um, and if you could talk a little bit more about what was happening then and how the Nordic animist concepts of Ragnarok, and I think a lot of people have heard these terms, Ragnarok and Yggdrasil, uh, otherwise known as the World Tree, how these concepts are connected to this. Uh, Fimble winter period. Yeah, the the uh, the Fimble winter. Um, when we talk archaeologically, uh, was a period that followed a, a very strong uh, volcanic eruption that I think happened in Mesoamerica, something like that, which caused a global cooling. Now, the global cooling that hit cold places harder than warm places. Yeah, and that m- meant that. Northern Europe was hit very hard. And you see in the archaeology, this happened in, in the 6th century, that's the Iron Age. So you see a very steep decline in uh, human activity, in cultural expression, in human populations. There are uh, populations in, in northern Scandinavia that get, or, or areas in northern Scandinavia that get completely almost depopulated. The huge area where the population are cut in half in, and and these are just from our perspective today. These are just cold statistics. Okay, so the the area gets depopulated, the population is cut in half. Imagine how that would have looked from the existential point of view of people living there. That would have been brutal, war, death, hunger, collapse. You see also, by the way, steep declines and stuff like um, artistic expression. Mm. You see. Curiously, a huge rise in gold deposits in the earth. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers of this, but in, in Denmark, there is a, Denmark has a lot of archaeology and archaeological remains, but there's a huge concentration, completely disproportionate concentration of gold being found in exactly that period. And, and people think that uh, this... This these sacrifices of the most valuable thing you have, but that you can't eat, is inspired by by the fact that that suddenly summer just didn't return for a couple of years, mm. and uh, in a subsistence farming society, this is catastrophic beyond our imagination. So that is, is the historical thimble winter, right? Now, so. This is also an experience of climate change, of course, climate weirding and its its consequences. In the immediately following period, or the period immediately following this, <laughs> you have the Viking Age going on. Not immediately following, but fairly historically fairly close to it. And in that uh, period, uh, you see a lot of very steep social changes happening in Scandinavia. You see urbanization nation-state formation, Christianization, and what you actually also see is, guess what? Globalization. People invented new ways of moving the Viking ship, famous Viking boats, that just exploded people's access from, uh, to the world. All of a sudden, you could speak your own little shit-kicker dialect from somewhere in Jutland. You could speak it from Persia to North America. It was an unprecedented level of uh, globalization. Now, so, so these very intense social changes, they meant, they, uh, they pushed people, I think, into what is uh, sometimes called millenarianism. It, it often happens, actually, in colonization uh, situations that people's normal traditional world space is being completely disrupted. And then people go into an apocalyptic expectation that everything's going to collapse, mm. and then our well-ordered traditional world is going to, going to return. Uh, an example, example from North America is the uh, Great Plains Natives ghost dance movement, where they were dancing themselves into trance and uh, invoking the return of, of the, uh, the time before the European settlers had come and, and disrupted their lives uh, very thoroughly. Right? <laughs> uh, and 
something similar happened inside the mind of, of uh, Viking Age Northern Europeans experiencing these very strong cultural changes. So they reflected on the experience of climate change in relation to the disruption of traditional world, and that became the myth of the Ragnarok. So the myth of the Ragnarok basically tells the story about how the the, the ties between dynamisms and forces and persons and communities in the traditional world, those precarious ties that made everything together, how they collapsed. And then, then the, the gods and the trolls who used to have different kinds of weird relations, they had sex and had babies, they married each other, they identified with each other, they played games, they learned from each other, they made contracts, and they also killed each other sometimes. This compl- all this complexity and relating and bonding with each other, that collapses. And then they start behaving like Christian angels and demons on each side of, of this uh, strict, non-bonded distinction reality that Christianity has. And, the, and the re- so the reality of the collapse of these relations is climate change. The Ragnarok is... Uh, kind of an eco-apocalypse, really. It is a myth of the is a mythic reflection on the existential experience of climate change. I don't know if I formulated that in a good way or if it became a little bit like. Blah, blah, blah. I, I hope that makes sense. I understood what you were saying okay. perfectly. <laughs> okay, so the uh, the Idrasil, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, the the world tree then signifies the the natural balance of the world and then the because of Ragnarok then the the tree was destroyed or damaged yes. in some way is that basically yeah, in, that, in in so many words what what happened yes the okay. uh the the poem called Volspa uh, talks about how the uh, how the the world tree is devoured by Surt, the uh, the fire giant, um, and the world tree is as you say that there is an image of uh, of the organic interconnectedness of all life. That's how I would see it. Mm-hmm. If you look, for instance, at um, some Swedish rune stones that have images. That, that that look like a kind of a world tree. Then you see, you see the world tree and the bottom of the tree, there's kind of a little bond or kind of a little eight-figure looking thing which ties a dragon. And that dragon lies all around the, the, uh, the ordered world. So you have the ordering principle, the tree, and then you have the, the, the dangerous chaotic being, the thread to ordered existence, but they're bound together. Mm-hmm. And the tree almost grows out of the dragon somehow, uh, and that th- this is an image of the of the uh, the ordered harmonious balance of the world. That these things are connected and they're in some sort of balance with each other. Mm-hmm. And when that bond breaks, then the wolf runs free, and and the tr- the tree burns. And one of the myths also uh, states that humanity in the form of a couple called Liv and Livfrasir, they seek refuge in a place called Hutmini's Holt, which is probably means some sort of a grove or perhaps a tree or something like that. And then they survive somehow inside this tree thing, and they will give birth to a new humanity after our collapsed, uh, collapsed uh, reality. I mean, in my view... The myth of the Ragnarok, I know, I know of no piece of mythology from the whole world that speaks with such power to exactly the situation that we are in today, where our traditional rupture, uh, knowledge has been ruptured by uh, uh, modernity and Christianity and so on. The world is burning. The fire giant is scorching Australia and California. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are probably looking towards a uh, very uh, grave social collapse. It's a very beautiful imagery that you described with the tree and the dragon about the balancing of the, 
the order and chaos balanced together. How that is actually, uh, it should be a harmonious relationship. And mm. the, the lesson there that we should really be aware of our responsibility in keeping that balance and that harmony and relationship. So, Definitely. yeah, the, all of these mm. all of these things that I've been reading about with that you've said to me and, and, and thinking and reflecting on it is just really hitting home right now in, in our discussion. So um, I appreciate that. Please join us for part two as we move our discussion to modernity, the impact of this worldview on animist traditions, how extremist groups appropriate Nordic animist knowledge for their own agendas, and how a story about a troll from animist lore can help us to think differently about the internet. Mm-hmm.